0: at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at Podcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and new Let It Roll intern Ivan DeHaas kick off a new series, Three Kings of Emo Rap, with a look at the XXXTentacion documentary, Look At Me email us at let it roll podcast at gmail.com pop in those earbuds and enjoy
1: it's time to let it roll i'm your host nate wilcox and we're starting a new series and i want to introduce everybody to ivan de haas the let it roll intern ivan welcome to the show
2: hey nate thanks for having me and so
1: today we're going to discuss Extensión, Look at Me, the documentary about Jaso Dwayne Onfroy, which is on Hulu. He's one of what we're, we're calling this miniseries, the three kings of emo rap. We're also going to talk about Lil Peep and Juice World. And for people like me in their 50s who vaguely paid attention to this stuff, there was just a period in the mid-2000s where it seemed like every big new rapper died before they made 27 i mean nobody was making the 27 club none of these guys made it what was little peep 23 was he the oldest one of these three
2: uh i believe little peep was uh 21 at the time of his death according to the documentary
1: yeah and and extension was 20 juice world i want to say was 22 um but since you know there's documentary on Extensión came out last year a little peep documentary came out i want to say in 2021 juice world also 2021 i want to say and i've been you know it definitely caught my attention when i saw that these guys were so young and were dying and and some of the people that were dying were not notable you know they were people that were only being written about because they had been murdered or participated in a murder but Some of these artists, Extension, Lil Peep, and Juice World, definitely in that category, had a compelling artistry that drew an enormous fan base and drew enormous attention, even though, to varying degrees, all three of them used negativity to drive social media engagement, if that's a fair way to put it. And I think Extensión was the most explicit about using conflict to drive social media engagement. And we're not talking about Takeshi69. What's the difference between, say, Extensión, Little Peep, and Juice World, and somebody like Takeshi69? I
2: think X dealt um, very you know, clearly in issues of like mental illness and, um, and depression. And those were the themes that mainly drove a lot of his, um, later music, um, earlier on, however, I noticed, uh, especially in the documentary and from just hearing about him when I was in high school in mid 2010s, that, um, a lot of negativity surrounding, um, you know, fights and just generating a lot of controversy online was the way that he was able to amass a uh, an initial following, especially like in the underground uh, South Florida hip hop scene. And then later on, because of social media and the Internet uh, that spread to a much wider audience, six, um, nine sort of relied on that same controversy generating Takashi six, nine, uh, that controversy generating formula, um, but a lot more. Um, with, you know, not really videos of physical altercations, more so um, trying to, uh, you know, start arguments and beef online with uh, overt, you know, social media figures, celebrities and other musicians, and just really stuck to that formula, not really incorporating any different or like personal narratives within his music.
1: Yeah, and and I'm not trying to bag on Takeshi69, although I think it's certainly fair to do so. But We picked these three artists just because they seem to have more compelling. Their music just seems to have more staying power than Takeshi 6ix9ine. It's very early to say, but, and, and, and it's a very interesting story. And there's lots of documentaries about, and book, a book about Takeshi 6ix9ine, but he doesn't quite fit in this category, which we're calling emo rap, which has this emotional quality. Kind of explain as a high school kid, how did you see these guys? Like was this mainstream, like, who was into this stuff? And and what were the o- other options? Like, like you know, what groups of kids were into extensione and other emo rappers? And and what were the competitors,
2: what were the other groups of kids into? So the uh, kind of rise to prominence of emo rap was uh, more or less from 2016 to 2019, a perfect bracket for um, uh, Gen Z-H people like myself to be in kind of high school and the era of getting into music. Um, I can myself consider and many others consider emo rap at that time to be a, um, a relatively commercial genre. It was taken in stride a lot with the likes of uh, trap music and um, you know pop rap, uh, stadium rap. Uh, the likes of artists such as, um, as Drake, for example, and Travis Scott were getting big in 2017, 2018 as well. Uh, and the a lot of the emo rap figures, such as um xXxtentacion and um, the year after him, especially Juice World, who followed a similar quick rise to stardom, um, they had pretty much an equal amount of commercial appeal as a lot of uh, the the artists that had a lot higher uh, budget and a much bigger team behind um, curating their music and putting it out and marketing it. however,, um, you know, X had a much different way of doing that, but it was equally as popular, I would say, as um, a lot of the um, larger figures in hip hop that had been, you know, more well known and more famous for a longer amount of time. It just happened very quickly in a flash during that that high school 2017, 2018 era, and um, it had a, a great deal of staying power, honestly, up, up until the 2020s. Yeah, and let's go ahead and hear some extension. This is Look
1: At Me.
3: Yeah, 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 ay. Ay, ay, I like bitch who is your mess, ay. Hey. Can't keep my dick in my pants, Hey, My bitch don't love me no more, ay. Hey. She can't be out on life, bro, Hey, That bitch don't want to be friends, Hey, I give her a yeah, i our man, She put her ten on my dick, Hey, Look at my wrist about ten, Hey, Just got a... Ay, that to the
2: booth,
1: and that was extension look at me and every time i call him extension my kids uh, laugh at me and tell me just to call him x so <laughs> it confuses an old person <laughs> what to call this guy but it seems like everybody just calls him x
2: Yeah, that's what I largely refer to him as, Um, well, especially when I was getting into his music and also just for the sake of, you know, concatenation.
1: Yeah, and so tell us about this song and what, how, you know, how was this song made? How was it marketed?
2: What kind of audience did
1: it reach? How do you classify it?
2: So the first time I heard Look At Me was actually um, because it kept resurfacing in a series of Instagram videos oftentimes showing either fights or just you know other kind of uh, you know like erratic behavior but it was um it was you know essentially made to be a very very loud abrasive track that um pretty much pressed all the buttons for um for you know explicit content and um and something that you wouldn't you know wouldn't really want to be playing out loud in public and you know if you were, you'd be you'd be pretty uh, you'd be looked at in a pretty negative way. Um, but uh, from another p- point of view, uh, a lot of people saw this as a very, uh, a very hype song, something very high energy, more raw and um, and hard hitting than really anything, um, anything that hip hop had seen in a while. Um, this was pretty characteristic of a lot of the rappers coming out of the South Florida scene in the, mid, in the mid-2010s. Um, XXX Tentacion rose to fame, kind of a long stride. The likes of uh, Denzel Curry, who had a similarly really loud um, song, you know, spread through social media platforms and memes, um, and as well as Smoke Perp. A lot of artists from South Florida had this uh, this very. Poorly mixed, abrasive, uh, high gain approach to hip hop that was, um, you know, that incendiary style really caught the eyes of people online, especially, and allowed it to spread like wildfire. Would Kodak Black be in that same group? I do think he, uh, I do think he would be. Yes, he's. Okay. Uh,
1: yeah, he, he's one that one of the first ones that came to my attention because I'm Facebook friends with a a number of middle-aged african-american female academics uh just some friends of mine uh, you know i had a close a good friend of my wife's in that demo and then became friends with her friends online, and I noticed that they really hated Kodak Black. I'd never heard of him before, but suddenly all these middle-aged Black women are just tut-tutting their heads off about this rapper, and I'm like, that is a sign of somebody doing something important. If you're pissing off the middle-aged ladies, <laughs> you, you know, you're know you probably representing the youth in some way, even if it's in a negative way. And so I started paying attention right there. But let's talk about the movie a little bit. I mean, it opens up with X himself, discussing his mental state and his paranoia and it's it's pretty effective i mean it's it's disturbing and upsetting from the get go and this guy is somebody i first heard of x when his the deposition from his ex-girlfriend who had you know been brutalized he was never convicted in court but there's no reason to disbelieve her story brutalized extremely savagely like i read the the deposition on pitchfork and it was Jaw dropping. This was not. This wasn't me and my girlfriend got in a fight at the club, or you know, dude lost his head and slapped his wife around in the in an elevator on camera or something. This was systematic, horrific abuse from somebody who had methodically separated his partner from all of from her job, from her friends, from her family, and then was systematically, methodically, savagely torturing her. I mean, this was way beyond the pale. And then when I hear his music, it's clearly powerful music. The guy was absolutely undeniably talented. I mean, you know, Look at Me is about what you would expect. That was, and as a punk rock fan, you know, I could relate to that. That was hard hitting young guy, macho stuff. But the next wave of songs he did was a complete swerve and showed this level of melodic creativity. I mean, he's not Beethoven or anything, but he's really, really talented, and so it immediately put me in this very conflicted space I never got out of. How do you resolve that? I mean, when did you learn about the charges with the girlfriend and and kind of the magnitude of his capacity for evil behavior? How did you balance that out with, with the obvious
2: appeal of his music? Well, I heard about kind of the, uh, controversy surrounding this artist, uh, around the same time when I got into him, uh, 2017 to 2018, uh, early 2018, especially when his, um, I think it was, uh, the question mark, his, uh, his second project on streaming services dropped, but, um. At the time, I was not super invested in, you know, like researching or looking into the backgrounds of uh, the people whose music I'd listened to. That was something that I developed over time. And um, I knew that he was a uh, I knew that he was a domestic abuser. Um, I knew that he he had done, you know, some egregious things. But um, watching the documentary. Um, hearing, you know, uh, Geneva's testimony and uh, you know recollection of events, seeing all the evidence, and reading about how uh, Pitchfork dropped the um, you know dropped the deposition in early 2017, right around when um, he was beginning to gain a very popular following online more so than ever before, um, really painted him in a, um, a more horrific light. And you mentioned, you know, you described him as evil, and that was the Kind of one of the. I didn't the say he was thoughts. evil.
1: I said that he did evil things, and I think I think that's an important distinction. But sometimes when people do enough evil things, it becomes a moot point.
2: But anyway, go ahead. Absolutely, and um, you know, they mention uh sep or when he's being interviewed in uh, the 2017 clips that are uh, interspersed throughout the documentary, um, he mentions that being able to separate art from the artist, and he. Makes a distinction between Josse Anfroy and XXX Tentacion, um, but that being said, I um, I thought the appeal of his um, his you know like music that was put onto streaming and um, had a much more uh, softer almost R and approach to some of these um, some of these like songs uh, a lot of the mental health uh, topics that he would cover I thought they you know really Differed immensely from the way that he um, he gained a following, and it seemed like once he had that platform that he wanted, which was sort of intentionally geared to um, you know any any press is good press, catch as many eyes online as possible. Once he had that platform, it seemed like he could uh, he could really begin to um, make the music that he wanted to make and spread the message that he felt was uh, significant most significant to himself and most characteristic of his own of his own struggles and personal hardships and let's hear some of that music this is sad
1: and that was extension sad which was a, a big swerve in his career path and definitely got, brought him to even higher levels and you know you compared it to r&b but for me as an old-time alternative rock fan this music and a lot you know little peep and and many others juice world too reminded me of late period big star when Alex Chilton was having a nervous breakdown and and making his third album in a basically in a suicidal state. And at the time it was seen as unreleasable. It was an album that wasn't put out until three years, three, four years after it was recorded, and then built a cult audience. And you could compare him to somebody like Nick Drake or Leonard Cohen, which, you know, Leonard Cohen was popular in his day in the 60s and then had a big revival in the same period as as the the emo rappers are are big you know leonard cohen probably reached the apex of his popularity in the 2000s and 2010s and you know people say artists are like uh you know canaries in a coal mine and when to me when somebody this young and this popular is getting this popular with a song that's this sad and it is you know that's the title of it and it it's very notable. I mean I remember my wife being upset when our nine then nine-year-old daughter started wanting to listen to sad in the car. And you know, when your nine-year-old singing a song with the word suicide in it, that just sends a chill down your spine. And um, you know, this 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 I think I think it's representative of where the quote unquote youth of today are. And it's alarming, but it shouldn't be. I mean, there are plenty of reasons to be depressed and sad in our era. And it just seems like a perfectly reasonable response. Is you know, and my 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 older boy or my my son says that this music was part of the Xandemic when there was a, a big Xanax wave hitting the public. Did it correlate with drug use and depression in your school and your experience? <laughs>
2: Personally, um, I didn't know uh, like uh, anyone who represented that direct correlation, but um, on a wider scale, I could definitely observe uh, that that correlation generally occurring. Um, I know for a fact there was a lot of not only was there just an ongoing stigma surrounding mental health, but um, I think a lot of these artists, such as XXX Tentacion, who discuss mental health in their music, cropped up around the time. When the, um, the opioid epidemic and kind of its effect on an alarming effect on some of the, you know, like younger people, um, even, you know, like people of high school age, um, when that was really getting a lot of news coverage, when that was reaching the forefront in the mid to late 2010s, uh, that was definitely coincided very well with um, talking about the way um, drug use and per- uh, uh, depression were interlocked. And a lot of times um, that was interwoven really well into uh into certain elements of music that created for a really poignant topic and um although x had his own personal struggles and that is largely what his music is based around um i feel like you could more or less associate his music with that category of um you know like that that dangerous relationship between mental illness and uh and drug use and you know like emotional struggle and i think juice world and little peep also you know touch on these uh, topics quite well
1: yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the artists are just reflecting the world they're living in and, and oh, what a world. And, you know, the documentary, I think, does a pretty powerful job of telling X's story. And, you know, the broad parameters of it might seem like stories we've heard many times. Broken home, uh, African-American parents, father uh, and mother parted ways relatively early on. But the father stayed in, in X's life until he was 10 when the father was imprisoned. And then and then, you know, I believe they said he never saw his father again or saw his father one more time after he went to jail. So classic American socioeconomic drama African American family under strain, the you know, mass waves of incarceration that disproportionately impact black people impact this family. And X has a number of not stepfathers but men in his mother's life who are abusive that he sees and it and it's never quite said i mean his mother's a big figure in in the documentary she was the producer and uh and you know major figure her name's cleopatra bernard and she's the one running his estate kind of the yoko ono of 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 his legacy and she's a very strong person it comes across very clearly and and she talks about how you know she was only 17 when he was born and for me you know i was somebody who was 30 when he was born and she was 17 so you know she was the same age as my younger nieces and and that immediately hit me in the heart you know she's a baby having a baby and then trying to be a hard ass with him she apparently lavished material goods on him as much as she could and 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 it seems like the family did have some means um you know, he wasn't destitute, but he was emotionally destitute. And and at a very young age, he was out on the streets and involved in the criminal justice system, you know, getting caught up and, and committing stupid crimes. And, and there's video of him, uh, you know, committing assault uh, in the documentary and a, just a vicious, brutal assault. Apparently, on behalf of you know, there's a porn producer who takes him in because he's wanting to get into music as well, and he can he sees that the young Jose is a very promising young leader and performer, you know, and takes him in, and they're and they're clearly using fight videos to to promote themselves on social media, and it, I mean, the the overall impact it's it's also becoming clear in the video that he's you know emo rap comes from the term emo, which originally was emo core, which was a subset of hardcore punk that came out in the mid 80s in Washington, D.C., a group in particular Rights of Spring, head up by Guy Picotto, who later was one of the co-leaders of Fugazi. And they were coming, you know, it was like minor threats started the hardcore scene, but bad brains and the minor threats started the hardcore scene in DC. And they had these very evangelical leaders like HR from the bad brains, Ian McKay from minor threat. These were the kind of guys who were starting things like the straight edge movement without even really trying. Uh, HR eventually essentially invented the whole idea of positive punk. And Ian MacKay took that ball and ran with it. And Rides of Spring took that in a direction of dealing with personal emotional issues. And it seems to me Extensión kept that messianic or evangelical quality that HR and Ian Mackay pioneered in the beginning of the hardcore days while singing about these personal emo topics. But when you see him performing live, this kid is a hardcore lead singer. I mean, his stage movements, everything, it's coming from that HR tradition. And and Extensión clearly saw himself as a leader of youth. And and did seem and we'll talk about this the switch like initially he's playing the villain deliberately and that and they make it very clear that it's a self-conscious that he's aware of what he's doing he's playing the villain he's driving controversy he's he's behaving badly and taunting people with it but then we come to a turning point in his life and career and we'll talk about that when we get back from the sponsor break messiah and also napoleon complex i mean for a guy who made a lot of videos of himself beating people up and was clearly an accomplished street fighter he's a little dude how big was this guy
2: he was uh he was pretty short um i think he was five
1: two is what i want to say or somebody said that in the in the in the movie yeah i mean a little five foot dude six. yeah five foot six Person. yeah my size much more athletic than i than i ever was i mean a, a, a napoleon complex is what he had Did that messianic quality come across? I mean, did you know people who looked to him as a leader?
2: From my personal perspective, a lot of uh, my experiences with those who listened to and enjoyed his music, um, many of which I knew in high school, Some enjoyed it from a um, you know a sort of tangential perspective of this this guy makes uh, catchy music that's you know relatable and lo-fi, but um, there was most definitely a a commanding element not only in his approach to um, the topics that he would cover, but um, also in his very voice and his delivery of the lyrics and his um, uh, you know like versatile approach to making music, Uh, and I think that that was. Uh, pretty indicative uh, in the documentary as well um, especially with his drastic shift in his like you know public um, uh, public appearance public figure more or less he started with that sort of uh, you know that aggressive um, villain image which allowed him to blow up online and allowed him to um, via controversy and you know basically by uh, starting arguments being regardless of what the um, the topic of conversation was being at the center of it um, I think the, you know, the very, the very naming of the document, a documentary as Look at Me really embodies his, um, his propensity to be able to, uh, to lead and to command and influence. And in some cases, it was, you know, inspiring and impactful to a lot of people. And in other cases, it was, um, you know, it made Ski Mask the Slump God says at one point that when, when he was violent and unpredictable in that way, sometimes people in his circle uh, didn't want to be around him.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, he was clearly a handful to deal with, and and was a very extreme, very dominant personality, and 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 triggered a backlash. And when the news about Geneva Ilea's uh, deposition broke, and the movie, Geneva's on camera throughout the movie and telling her story, and this is a big decision that. Accention's mother made, that Cleopatra Bernard made, to include Geneva in this, and presumably she's included in the estate financially, I would assume as well that there's been a financial payoff and that is a good thing, it's an essential thing that they had to do to make this story at all palatable, they had to let Geneva tell her truth, because while he was alive, especially early on initially she was was treated as a social media pariah and his fans who had not read the deposition and didn't know the details, and X was actively misrepresenting what had happened. Um, And and Geneva was the victim of then online abuse in in a massive way. And so including her in the movie goes a long way towards a redemption arc of X and the estate and Cleopatra. But you can tell there's still a lot of tension when the two are on camera together in the same room it's not a relaxed scene. They're not sharing hugs. It's clear that Cleopatra is very much a mama bear who's trying to protect her boy and has come to terms with this woman who definitely had a claim on the estate because of the amount of harm that he did to her. And, and there's a pivotal moment in the movie when uh, the... And what, what's the name of the small record label he was on?
2: Was it... Um... His collective, uh, Members Only?
1: Yeah, members only. But what's what's the label that took him on? Empire was that- Empire, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so the um, Ghazi Shami, who's the head of Empire, um, talks about it in the movie, and he says that that after the deposition broke, X's reaction was to post this completely angry and defiant video, basically middle finger upraised at anybody who's upset about this towards Geneva, towards women in general, and that. You know, um, the dude from Empire, uh, Shami, is, you know, he he's very open about his decision to sign Extensión, and he knew there was controversy and he didn't care, or that the controversy even added to the appeal of Extensión. Right. And he was impressed with Extensión as a businessman because while he was negotiating, to do a deal, which was just to license a couple of singles, not even own them, just license them, basically rent them from Extensión, release them on his label, pay a small advance, like I think a six-figure advance, when the other deal that Jose was looking at was a multi-million dollar advance with a major label record company that would then own his masters, that would be buying his music. And Extensión was smart enough to know, no, you don't want to do that. I mean... Owning your own masters is something that people like Michael Jackson and Prince had to get to the very top of the inter- entertainment world in order to do. People like the Beatles uh, never managed to own their own masters. And, and you know, so he's avoiding this pitfall, and, and Shami's very impressed with his canniness. But then this horrific incident ha- is revealed, you know, in its full awfulness via the deposition. X's response is abysmal, and there's a, a conference call with X, his mother, his record label, his entertainment lawyer, his criminal lawyer, because he's got multiple criminal cases going, including the assault case on Geneva, and um, I can't remember if anybody, maybe his producer was was there as well, and X is just completely defiant and angry, but then Shami said he called him back later and was like, hey man, I just want to, you know, how are you doing? I just want to talk to you, and he says, hey, you know, you don't need to play the villain anymore. You're already a made man. You can, you can show other sides of yourself and from that point on extension switches his messaging
2: absolutely yeah and
1: yeah and so did what was the response to that when he made that switch like did it seem organic did it seem contrived did people go for it
2: i think um so I'm gonna take it to back when he was released from prison. His initial reaction to the um, kind of the amount of momentum that his music and uh, like you know public figure had gained while he was imprisoned, um, he had a, you know an extremely positive reaction to that. He was he was overjoyed. He was ecstatic. And um, I think when uh, Shami really spoke to him about um, his uh, controversial uh, video, I remember it was um, a lot of horrible remarks towards women and, um, you know, immediately that was, um, you know, they're trying to do damage control on that by going on that phone call that you mentioned and initially he had a very angry reaction to that because of that, that, um, that anger that sort of dominated his personality. He, um, he had an adverse, you know, response to, you know, supposedly apologizing and taking back what, what he said in order to, um, you know, ameliorate that sort of online appearance. But I I think at that point, it was somewhat of an authentic pivot because at the same time, it was pretty clear that a lot of this anger was, uh, due to a long standing, um, history of mental illness and, um, you know, like past trauma that I think once he understood that he'd like, like Shami said, he'd, he'd made it. And Solomon says this as well, um, his, his manager, after he gets out of prison, um, He'd made it. He had that platform. He didn't necessarily need to constantly be starting things online in order to um, increase his following. And um, at that point, I think he realized that another uh, another like, you know, valid aspect of his platform would be to use it as an outlet for the things that he was dealing with within himself, his inner conflicts that were causing all this incendiary behavior. And I think um, that was pretty it was pretty evident when that shift happened. Um, I remember there was a really sudden change in his appearance, especially after he shaved his eyebrows. And that was along when he'd become a lot more open about his depression. And um, from that point forward, there was a pretty significant change in his music as you mentioned. And I would say it's pretty authentic because it seemed to have helped him, um, especially in the you know, first, first few months, first half of 2018, really. Uh, you saw kind of an increase in um, positivity in his music.
1: Yeah, and let's hear some of that. This is Extension's Jocelyn Flores. Jocelyn Flores from Extension's late period, sadly. This whole career was compressed into a very short period of time. And, you know, it's kind of overwhelming for me emotionally as a parent, uh, seeing somebody of that age. He's like a child and watching, hearing the music and feeling the music. And, and to me, if your ears are open, the power of the music is undeniable. The, the, the man had a gift for melody, a gift for lyrics, he was able to mythologize himself and his persona and, and make his story, you know, if not universal, at least massively appealing to many people. And yet the nature of his conduct is so egregious. I mean, the kind of abuse that he inflicted on Geneva uh, Aguila is, you know, my wife was a prosecutor for many years and would come home talking about these domestic violence cases. And so frequently, you know, the domestic violence offender becomes the mass shooting offender. I mean, this these are very, very often the worst people in our society. And so this is someone who's literally embodying the best and worst of the human potential. And it it's it's frankly almost overwhelming. I can't imagine if I was in his demo and this was the music of my life, you know, I I think everybody, when they're 15, that that's the music, you know, the music that hits you when you're 15 is going to hit you in a way that no music ever will again. And no music has before that. And I, it just, it's kind of overwhelming. It makes me feel for this generation. And as we go through this series and we talk about these, this entire genre rose to, to incredible heights of popularity. And for a lot of people in their fifties, sixties, seventies, whatever, It might not have made any impact on you, but that's just because in our world, it's easy to segment yourself in and out. But if you were aware of what young people are listening to at all, this stuff was undeniable. And then the sudden deaths in the short term, it made him more popular, but longer term you know, there's no big tour, there's not going to be a seventh album, there's never going to be a mature Extensión making a statement from his maturity. All we have is this young person who frankly never had a chance to have a decent life. He, you know, go ahead. I mean, like, what's your take on this? Like, how do you how do you feel about um, Extensión from the perspective of 2023?
2: one thing i noticed looking back on the sort of life and career of uh, x as as i as i've you know witnessed it firsthand and you know looking at the documentary was um it seemed like his sense of improvement that he really um this kind of journey to better himself and use his fan base to spread not only positivity but to uh be able to basically Help help people out with their um, their own issues, help young people out with their you know like emotional turmoil and um, and you know like mental health adversities uh using this platform. I think that was the set like the the start of a very promising um like future of positivity and healing on a large scale, not only for X himself, but um looking back at it from 2023, it's um it's interesting how X's death occurred at the time right where he was showing the most potential for for improvement and for overall spreading a better message using his music, using the um, the reach that he had garnered over the past few years in the 2010s. It would have been really, really interesting to see his career trajectory uh, extending well into the 2020s. And um, I'm not sure how things how things would be, but looking, you know, if you were still alive today, if you were still putting out music, uh, the way I see it is. Um, His discography from back when he was alive is a very dense, um, emotionally heavy uh, flash in the pan for um, for not only emo rap, but hip hop and uh, music in general, contemporary music, uh, because of the way that it uh, touched people's hearts. And in 2023, even there is still that cult fan base of um, of X fans, um, the ones that were you know listening to him at the time of his death and were are in high school at the time and then there are there are new ex fans as well who are maybe growing into that age and discovering his music um but i think you know based on his spotify streams and um you know based on the you know recurring monthly listeners and all of the uh, attention he's still getting even in that that 5 years um, you're right in the long term there won't be any more new ex music but i think at least in the past half decade it's shown that his his influence, especially on people my age, has been so substantial that, well, really, it's remarkable how how much impact he's had, even if it was from an extremely twisted perspective and from a life where like, full of internal issues and domestic issues as well, not only with his family, but also the the horrible things he did to his girlfriend.
1: Yeah. And also the trauma he lived through. Not, not and not just his girlfriend. I mean, you know, there were lots of victims of his crimes, both victims of assault and robbery. And then he's in prison and and presumably being brutalized and brutalizing people in that context as well. Yeah, it's 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 almost overwhelming. My daughter is ten and she went from, you know, Taylor Swift and uh, Katy Perry right into little peep and extension in a, in a big way and and my son who's older and not that into music he he's like uh that that stuff's a relic of the of the zandemic and nobody cares about it anymore but clearly that's not the case since my daughter's making me listen to you know, little peep and extension every day which is uh honestly i enjoy i enjoy it as much as i enjoy sharing the beatles with her but yeah it's 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 very overwhelming. And let's talk a little bit about the SoundCloud aspect of this. Like, I know that some of these guys would essentially shop for beats on SoundCloud and other people would put beats up. But X was, and you know, and some of these figures, I mean, kind of all of them have been rejected by the hip hop establishment. Like, people who consider themselves lyrical rappers, for the most part, have dissed and dismissed the emo rap scene. Although Extensión was a little different. He got shout-outs from Kendrick Lamar. He got shout-outs from Drake. He was respected by the hip-hop establishment and is more connected to the mainstream of hip-hop traditions, I'd say, than, say, Lil Peep. But let's hear Moonlight. And when we come back, I want to ask you, um, you know, where does he fit into the SoundCloud rap scene and the and the greater history of hip-hop? But this is Moonlight from Extensión.
2: Should look good in the moonlight. Oh, I've seen so bad my Spotlight, moonlight. Niggle white should be tomorrow. Should look good in the moonlight. Oh, I've seen so bad mine. Spotlight, moonlight. Niggle white should be tomorrow. Should look good in the moonlight. I've seen so bad mine. Spotlight, moonlight. Niggle white should be tomorrow. Should look
1: good in the moonlight. And that was extension's moonlight. So I haven't, I mean. Tell us a little bit about how he made his music. His his production partner uh, John Cunningham uh, is featured pretty prominently in the documentary. What was their relationship like? What was Cunningham's resume like? How did he get this gig of being Extensión's musical right hand man? And, and how did they collaborate?
2: Well, from the documentary, uh, John Cunningham was a um, uh, a producer that I believe X knew from um, you know like uh, SoundCloud and also. Uh, it was really important to kind of understand that with all this with all this negativity, uh basically that the atmosphere of negativity that X constantly found himself in and sort of um you know projected onto the people in his close circle. John Cunningham was that exception, um, whose, you know, I think I think knack for um unique production and um and really, I don't know, forward thinking, but still relatively, you know, contemporary and in Vogue style drums, um, it's pretty. A lot of X's songs, such as Moonlight, are they—they they kind of have this, uh, this uh, they the reminiscent of trap music in some ways, uh, but they have an interesting spin on them. And um, I think that John Cunningham's approach to production there, um, when combined with X, um, really creates a it creates a unique dynamic. And I think that's reflected really well in the documentary when it seems like X is um, X's confidant in a lot of ways, uh, especially, you know, when recording Question Mark, his, uh, you know, second project, um, his, his, his John Cunningham was his confidant. It was someone who, who he could trust to, um, you know, not only enjoy making music with, but um, confide in as, um, you know, an outlet for all the negativity that was plaguing him. And I think sort of the result of, the result of that was this um, unique vein of music that x became known for especially after the release of question mark 17 was very characterized by um uh you know like lo-fi very very in-step emo rap style music and question mark had some of that as well but um the versatility of a lot of the songs on his second project i think was really uh caught was what really caught my eye personally when i was in my sophomore year and this came out there was a there's a very large Despite the short runtime of the album, there was a a large sound palette across the album. And um, that was really, that album was when I discovered X songs that I was actually really into at the time.
1: Yeah, and Cunningham talks about that, how he had been working with X, but not presenting his own beats to X. And he would, you know, X was asking him, hey, what beats do you have? And he'd say, well, I've got these beats from this guy and these beats from that guy and some beats from this gal over here. And X was like, no, I want to hear your beats. And that's where Sad came from. Liza Cunningham, you know, opened his computer up and X just jumps in and starts playing stuff. And sad was one of the things he found. And yeah, it's a dramatic departure from the style he had before and very notable. But the thing, and I haven't done a show on R. Kelly yet, and I haven't read um Jim DeGor Jim book, uh Soulless on on R. Kelly, which I need to to read. Uh but R. Kelly is somebody – I've been at high school uh, graduations when people are singing, I, I Believe I Can Fly. And it's overwhelmingly powerful. And it I remember when I realized what kind of creep R. Kelly was. And I was at a high school graduation. One of my nieces or nephew was graduating. I can't remember. And, you know, there was a bunch of black kids graduating, and they were singing, I Believe I Can Fly a cappella. And it was one of the most touching and inspiring things I've ever seen. At the same time, I knew this guy was a complete scumbag and monster. And and I still haven't resolved how I feel about that. Like, like I, I believe putting that song, I Believe I Can Fly Out into the World, was a good thing that, that helped people. And the thing with Extension, his redemption arc is very similar to the autobiography of Malcolm X. Now, Malcolm X is somebody, from our perspective, maybe it seems like he didn't need to redeem himself. But in the 1960s, he was seen as somebody who had been an over-the-edge radical, somebody who was beyond the pale of polite white civilization, and particularly his involvement with the Nation of Islam, which is an odd offshoot. It's not mainstream Islam. It's a very unique American religion derived from Islam that has explicitly racist beliefs that are not reflective of the greater Islam. And and Malcolm X goes to Mecca and and begins to learn the, the full traditions of Islam and realizes the limitations of the nation of Islam's approach. And then the book, Autobiography of Malcolm X, written with Alex Haley, explains his broader vision and how he had come to realize he could be a leader for all mankind and not just a specific race in a a zero sum, you know, us, we gain when you lose kind of relationship. He was looking for a we gain when we, you know, we benefit when you benefit and a win-win for all of humanity. And so there's this tradition in African-American history of, of this redemption arc. And X is very much someone who appeared to be moving in that direction. But again, as is pointed out in the documentary, he never apologized to Geneva. He never admitted what he did. But as John Cunningham points out, that's because they were looking to take his life away, that the prosecutors were coming, that when Geneva dropped charges, that they immediately hit him with witness tampering charges. And he was looking at decades and decades in prison. And so for all these people, I mean, he's basically become a cottage industry who's creating millions and millions of dollars and all these people are working for him, they all have a vested interest in keeping him free and, and keeping him from making any statements that are going to get him convicted immediately. But, and I know you can't answer this question definitively, but where do you put all this stuff? I mean, do you, do you feel like, especially watching the documentary, do you feel like knowing that he was aware of his impact on people. And he says things like, I'm going to start a cult. And then kind of proceeds to do so. Do you view him as more of a blessing or a curse for everybody? Like, how do you, and, and I know it's not fair. We can't, we can't sum him up into one yes, no answer, but give me a yes, no answer.
2: <laughs> well, to be honest, when I actually listened to his music five years ago, I, you know, and I wasn't taking into all that, I thought of him as more of a blessing when I got into his music, um, you know, up until the time when he was shot and killed. Uh, Now, after watching the documentary, I've, you know, more or less switched sides. All the terrible things that he um, he's done and hasn't admitted to, you know, referring to um, he mentions that Ayala or yeah, Ayala got jumped, and um, rather than you know him causing uh, that you know those horrible you know bruising marks and all the uh all the other um you know like separate testimonies included uh like the um the girlfriend of one of the producers who heard the sounds of a all like potentially being drowned in their bath in their bathtub i mean that was horrific for me that's it sort of switched for me to be honest i view him more as a more as a curse now and i think it's it might be because of the whole um i guess growing out of or losing interest in his music but um you know i think all the the weight of of those those like actions and i think the lack of accountability there i know you know john cunningham mentions they were they were trying to get him on witness tampering i remember that he was going to uh, face he was he was going to a trial, but, you know, his death prematurely, um, you know, ended, ended that. And, um, but I still think there was a, um, you know, like a great deal of, of hatred there. And I thought, I think now that if you were given more time to uh, ameliorate that and, you know, uh, basically, allow for more positivity to result from his situation and his career. Um, although, you know, certainly his not only uh, Ayala but also uh, you know Cleopatra Bernard, uh, his mom, is benefiting from from the impact his music and his the success his music has now. I still think that um, had he been given more time to make things right, uh, it would maybe not be the case. But as for now, like from this current perspective, I, I view the situation as more of a curse.
1: I see. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of view it as, as I'm not going to give, I, I believe I can fly back. Like, that's, that's the song that means something to me. And I feel the same way about Extensión. Like, yeah, he did terrible things. And... It's not my place to judge him as a person, you know, I, I can't judge anybody else. But his music to me is a gift and I'm not gonna like tell my daughter not to listen to it. And and you know, we're we're all stumbling through this this sometimes horrible, sometimes overwhelmingly beautiful world. And and when somebody can sum it up in beautiful words and music in three minutes or two minutes. That's valuable. You know, if I found out that Leonardo da Vinci was a cannibal who ate babies, does that make me want to not look at The Last Supper anymore? No. (laughs) You know, I still want to, I still want to stare at the Mona Lisa. And ultimately, at the end of the day, all we have is the art. And, and, you know, I don't know. But again, I don't know. It's, it's, I think, an indictment of our society, his entire life was i mean the the circumstances socioeconomically and culturally that caused him to be born to a 17 year old who wasn't ready to parent to have a father who's in prison i don't know anything about his father's criminal history but it's very clear we've got a massively racist mass incarceration industry that that imprisons people, especially black people for profit, and that has scars on people. And, And you know, my mother was in social we- welfare, my wife has been a prosecutor and also has represented victims of domestic violence and represented children of abusive parents. And you see these stories of once a family breaks and how, you know, you can have children of a relatively healthy family that have troubled lives and then their children have more troubled lives. And their children have even more troubled lives. And by the time you're on your, say, third generation of crackhead parents, it's really hard to get anything positive out of people. And, and Cleopatra Bernard certainly no crackhead, uh, and I don't think there was any allegations that she ever was a drug abuser. She seems like somebody who had it very together, but also was an immigrant and a very in a very hard society, and and was a hard person, a hard mother. She tried to raise her son you know, she says at one point, you know, he was my practice child. I, I, I learned you can't force a child to be what you want them to be. You have to let them be themselves. And it seems very clear there was more to their dynamic than was really told in the movie, that there was clearly a bigger clash between Cleopatra and Jose in his childhood that led him to be out on the streets by the time he was 14. And then the force of his talent and the force of his, more even than his talent, the force of his personality and the force of his physicality meant that wherever he was unleashed, he's going to have an impact. So I don't know. I been I, I, I uh, yeah, I don't know what I think about Jose Dwayne Onfori. I'm glad I'm not, I'm not, I'm glad it's not my responsibility to judge judge these people, but I've enjoyed uh, this conversation. Any final thoughts about Extension and look at me you want to share?
2: Well, I thought you brought up a really good point, Nate, is at the end of the day, you know, I may, you know, I may have mentioned the, the magnitude of the crimes that he committed, but I don't know what it's like to be born and raised into that, that situation full of generational trauma, full of adversity. And, um, I've kind of, I kind of saw this as a, um, I don't know. The chaos was sort of an inevitability, especially when I got to the documentary, uh, the part of the documentary where they mentioned he was, you know, diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but wasn't necessarily, um, you know, they're, they're, they went, took him to counseling, didn't necessarily do it, like take any further steps. So um, with yeah, he elements like to that... to take medication. Yeah, that's right. Cleopatra mentioned that she didn't believe in uh, putting labels on kids where she's from or medicating them. And um, I think... That- those details sort of, um, you know, snowballed and, uh, the the environment of violence and, uh, you know, the emotional desolation that X experienced, um, really puts things into perspective as, um, I don't necessarily think that, you know, uh, X, did some of these things for, you know, for the sake of just being malicious. I think all the internal conflicts that he was experiencing, all the constant turmoil that he'd lived in in those two in the comparatively short two decades of his life, all of that was a result of really his upbringing, as you mentioned. and um at the end of the day, it was he was somebody who had made something quite impressive out of really adverse circumstances even if there were a lot of uh you know a lot of wrongful decisions made along the way and i think that's you know that's nonetheless applaudable i just wish that he'd been given more time to uh, expand on that direction of positivity that he was planning on going in right when he was shot and killed
1: yeah the the murder is utterly egregious and the, the perpetrators have been convicted hopefully they got the right guys i didn't pay close attention to the trial it seems like a completely atavistic, unmotivated crime. Uh, simply saw somebody with something they wanted and, and tried to take it, although they didn't succeed in even robbing him of any possessions. It was tragedy upon tragedy, and, and I, I guess the last thing I'll say is that that there are certain figures I look at as Luciferian, and you know that's the the Christian story of Lucifer, the archangel who's at the right hand of God, and when Jesus comes along, and I've never understood the whole. Con- this is holy trinity concept but god the father son and holy ghost are separate but the same but anyway the, the the story is the myth is that lucifer saw the greatness of jesus and realized that as great as he was he could never match that and and became jealous and ruined and and ultimately rebelled against god and tried to overthrow god but knew that it was hopeless knew he never had the power to do it and and you know is then cast out and into hell and become Satan and there are certain figures to me like Ike Turner um, or Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones who are unforgivably bad people that the things they did especially to women are just so awful you can't admire them and yet the music they made Ike Turner essentially invented rock and roll with Rocket 88 and then you know was a key part of Tina Turner's great works uh, in in the 60s and, and then, you know, a driver of the funk revolution in the 70s, and Brian Jones invented the Rolling Stones and 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 all that, that comes with it. But these are people that had a turning point in their life and went in a negative direction, that Brian Jones was on an active death wish, and Ike Turner was actively abusive to Tina just because he wanted to keep control of her. And Extensión and was trying to go in the other direction, in this Christ-like direction, where he's trying to redeem himself through good behavior but the one thing that he never got a chance to do was repent and he never got a chance to come clean and maybe he never would have maybe he never would have admitted that he had done wrong to geneva and apologized to her in a way that was fitting or to his other victims but he never got that chance and it's just i don't know it's an overwhelming story and ivan thanks so much for coming on the show and helping us discuss it next week we'll be back to talk about little pete
0: follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Letter It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com Next week, Nate and Ivan continue the Three Kings of Emo rap series with a look at the Lil Peep documentary, Everybody's Everything. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com